loud mic. <clears throat> it's a joy to be with you today, to sing, to hear God's Word uh, read and prayed, to study in blocks together. It's a good thing to be in fellowship together with you. Uh, Pastor Nathan, as has been said, is away this morning. He's preaching uh, at the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. I had to Google that to find out where that is. That's way up in the northeastern corner of Texas uh, near Lufkin. Uh, Pastor uh, Mark Minter is doing a revitalization work there. <clears throat> so uh, Nathan, Pastor Nathan had decided some time ago he had scheduled this, uh, this uh, pre preaching engagement and had asked me to speak in his place from Revelation chapter 27 through 10, which is the next passage in the, uh, in the sermon series. I'm so thankful for your prayers. I've, I've heard uh, so many of you assure me of your prayers, and I have felt them, and I'm grateful for them. Uh, Pastor Nathan said uh, when a couple, I guess it was about a, two months ago or so, he told me about this, and he said, uh, <clears throat> when I read the text, I said, I, I'm not sure what, what to do with this. And he said, well, it was one of the easier passages. And I uh, was reminded of the guy that was asking his high school buddies, well, where do I, uh, I've got to take a, a foreign language, and uh, w what should I take? Which, which one is, is best? And they said, well, you should take Spanish. I mean, it's, it's the easiest. So uh, after a short while, and he signed up for that class, and after a short while, he learned that there is no such thing as an easy foreign language. So this is a little bit hard for me, but it's challenging. It's a challenging passage, and uh, I am grateful for your prayers. Let's remind ourselves of the broad purpose of the book of Revelation by revisiting the prologue uh, that is found in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. I want to read this passage and then uh, lead us in praying it back to God. <clears throat> Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to, the servant, to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's bow for prayer. God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the revelation of Jesus Christ, which you gave by your angel to your servant, John the Apostle, to show us the things that must soon take place. We ask for your blessing upon the reading and the hearing and the keeping of this Scripture, and we are excited that the time is near. We pray in the great name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> Our passage today, Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, um, I want to begin by uh, sort of at the end by stating the argument being advanced to us in this passage by the author. In other words, the main conclusion or conclusions that I think are contained in the text itself. 
I want to set this down at the beginning and then come back to it at the end. Here's the statement. God will bring about an end to Satan, the deceiver, with a defeat that is certain and a judgment that is fitting. Let me repeat that. God will bring about an end to Satan, the deceiver, with a defeat that is certain and a judgment that is fitting. As we read this passage, uh, it is a short passage. It's only four verses. And um, I don't think it'll do any harm to, <clears throat> to read it quickly again. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. <clears throat> what immediately stands out to me in this passage is a sense of duplication. We see the nations of the earth deceived by Satan, gathered for battle against the people of God and the city of God. Haven't we seen this before? Why is this happening again? Just a few verses earlier in chapter 19, verse 19, the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies were gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. This looked like the final showdown, and it ended with a crushing defeat for the enemies of Christ. Yet here in chapter 20, we see another mobilization of innumerable forces for an epic battle. We might be tempted to think that perhaps the battle of chapter 20 is a retelling of the battle of chapter 19. However, the text doesn't support this notion. The events are all linked together in a chain of causes and effects. The first battle leads to the seizure and imprisonment of Satan, which leads to the millennium, which leads to the release of Satan, which leads to the second battle. Notice that in this entire passage, there is no mention of God. So one might conclude that the subject of the passage is Satan. And this is true in a sense. But I would suggest that God is present and this passage is really about Him. Look again at verse 7. Who sets the thousand years? God. Who determines when they are ended? God. By whose will is Satan released? God's will. Who made and keeps the prison? God does. This is a picture of the planning and the power of God. Look again in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Do you see that when the time comes for Satan to be seized, God doesn't even have to do it himself? He just sends an angel. 
one angel. And this angel is coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. So it appears that the angel doesn't even have both hands free. Yet the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, is seized, bound, thrown, shut, sealed, boom, done. This is the planning and the power of God. I want to try to go through this passage that we're dealing with today in uh, verses 7 through 10. <clears throat> I want you to notice there what I'm calling seven seconds. Seven seconds. This is a, the, the duplication thing I was talking about, the deja vu thing. We're seeing second time. Seven seconds. A second appearance of Satan. A second attempt at deception, a second acceptance of the devil's lies, a second assembling of the armies of the nations, a second attack upon the saints of the beloved, and the beloved city, a second annihilation of the enemies of God, and finally a second arrest of the devil, followed by God's final judgment of him. So first we have a second appearance of Satan. In Revelation 27, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out. <clears throat> A second appearance. Satan has been out and about, then imprisoned, then released, so he makes a second appearance. This raises the question, <clears throat> what about his first appearance? When and how did this happen? We know from Genesis 3, as we read this morning, that the serpent was present in the garden and practicing his deceit which is his hallmark. He deceived the woman into distrust and disobedience. He deceived her into valuing something else above God, delighting in something created above the Creator, the gift above the giver, and ultimately believing the lie that God could not be trusted to know and provide what was best. So God speaks to the serpent in Genesis 3:14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Genesis 3.15 has been called the fountainhead of messianic prophecy. No sooner had the fall occurred than God stepped in with the gospel. Here is the promise that the woman's descendant would crush the serpent's head, although at some cost to himself. We know this speaks of Jesus and his victory at the cross. There is also a line leading from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, where the serpent meets his final judgment. This speaks of the planning of God, who sees the end from the beginning and brings it about through his power and wisdom. And I want to mention about this verse uh, 3.15 of Genesis. This image of the, of the head of the serpent being crushed and the heel of the Messiah being uh, wounded. 
The, the word is translated bruise in both cases. It's a Hebrew word, shuf, that only appears uh, t- four times in the Bible, in the, in the Hebrew. And uh, it's the same word. So a lot of different translations have, have used two different words, but it is the same word. <clears throat> and so uh, the idea of a person saying, I had an encounter with a snake, and the, we would ask, well, um, how did that go? Are you okay? And, oh, okay, I, I just bruised a little bit. And you're like, bruised? Uh, we don't expect a bruise from a snake. We expect a bite from a snake. So I think this is a picture of... The picture we see here is of a person planting a foot on a snake up near his head and crushing down his head with his heel. So, I think it's, uh, it, it's correct to say that the devil did not even have the power to bite Jesus. That Jesus, when he crushed the devil, the force of that blow, it was an indication of a self imposed wound. It was God's pleasure, it says uh, in Isaiah, to bruise him. And so this again speaks of the power of God. God is absolutely powerful. The devil is uh, a created being and does not have the power uh, that we sometimes seem to want to think that he might have. <clears throat> anyway, that's the, the uh, second appearance of Satan in Revelation. Then there's a second attempt at deception in Revelation 28 that he will come out to deceive the nations. This shows the incorrigible nature of the devil in a tragic parody of the image of God. It could be said of the devil that a thousand years is as a day. It did not matter that he was imprisoned for so long a time there was no repentance for him. In all likelihood, his rage only grew the hotter. Then we see a second acceptance of the devil's lies. He came out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and they acquiesced in his temptation, in his deception. This shows the complete depravity of mankind. For a thousand years, the earth enjoys the beneficent reign of Christ and his saints, and the blessed absence of the devil's influence. Yet no sooner does Satan come out to deceive than the nations are willing to follow him as their chief. So um, we uh, read today in in Thessalonians a uh, passage that sort of speaks to this. And uh, that was in 2 Thessalonians 4, I think. So... The coming of the, is, excuse me, Second Thessalonians 2, 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This seems to be the picture with these nations having enjoyed the reign and rule of Christ and his saints a thousand years. And then when the devil comes out, um, it doesn't seem to take long, does it? For how long does it say that Satan is to be released? For a little while. 
How long will he engage in his deceit? For a little while. And how long will it take to win over the nations? Only a little while. Yes, but how long will Jesus put up with it? Just a little while. Next we have a second assembling of the armies of the nations. Revelation 28 comes out to gather them for, for battle. <clears throat> Their number is like the sand of the sea. John's audience, like the seven church, or the, who were the seven churches of Asia Minor, as well as us today, we recognize the allusion to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6, you might want to turn there. It's, we're not going to get uh, too much into it, but we are going to look at Ezekiel 38 and 39. <clears throat> and um, this reference to Gog and Magog would have immediately tipped and should immediately tip us off. In Ezekiel uh, 38, 1 through 6, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Togarmah, from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. And in verse 9 of Ezekiel 38, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Ezekiel 38, uh, chapter 38 and 39, gives a stirring account of an enormous host gathered against Israel, which Revelation 20, verse 8, condenses into the simple phrase, their number is like the sand of the sea. In Ezekiel, the language is detailed, and the style is majestic and sweeping, and keenly uh, looking forward to the day of its fulfillment. There's an excitement and a passion in that reading. I would, I would recommend you to read 38 and 39, perhaps later this afternoon. <clears throat> According uh, to Genesis 9 and 10, we learn that Magog and Meshach and Tubal were sons of Japheth. You may recall that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Israelites descended from Shem and the Canaanites from Ham. Ezekiel identifies Gog as being of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. These are peoples opposed to God and opposed by God. And Psalm 120 is another reference. It meditates on Meshech as being, quote, those who hate peace in verse 6 of uh, Psalm 120. And have lying lips and deceitful tongues, it says in verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 120. And these are people whom God will punish. <clears throat> Ezekiel 38.5 lists other allies, Persia, Cush, Put, Gomer, and Beth Togarmah. These are thought to be Iran, Sudan, Libya, northeast Turkey, and Armenia. The land of Magog itself and its precise location is uncertain. 
But I think it's clear to us that Gog is a type of or a representation of the person of the devil. <clears throat> In summary, though, there, uh, as there uh, was a gathering of nations, a gathering of armies in Revelation 19 for the first time, so now there is a gathering in Revelation 20, verse 8, for the second time, a second assembling. Then we have now a second attack upon the people and city of God. In the first battle, the armies not only were gathered, but they were on the offensive. Revelation 19, 19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered. Why? To make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. In the same way, in Revelation 29, for a second time, the armies are gathered. It says, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. As to how far their attack will be allowed to progress, we shall soon see. But they were certainly intent upon battle, mobilized, deployed, and pressing forward. Further description of the setting is seen in Ezekiel 38, 10, and 12. Thus says the Lord God, On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, speaking, this is speaking of Gog, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. To seize, spoil, and carry off plunder. To turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth. This picture is consistent with the idea of a land somewhat restored after the thousand-year reign of Christ and his saints earlier in Revelation 20. So our next second is a second annihilation of the enemies of God. Revelation 20 verse 9b, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. This statement is remarkably brief. This could be taken as an indication of the infinite power of God and His ability to effortlessly bring His ends to pass. I'm reminded of that little phrase in the creation account in Genesis 1.16 where it tells how God made two great lights, the greater to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night. And then, almost as an afterthought, it says, He also made the stars. Psalm 8 says, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have ordained. One preacher said, if that's what he did with his fingers, I'd like to see what he does with his whole arm. <clears throat> so the fire that we're seeing here in uh, consuming God's enemies, here in Revelation 29, <clears throat> 20 verse 9, the fire from heaven is mentioned in Ezekiel. God says this about his enemy Gog in Ezekiel 38, verse 22. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. Further, in Ezekiel 39, 6, 
it says, I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands. The second annihilation in Revelation 20, verse 9b, is briefly stated, but the event itself will be a staggering display of God's authority and judgment. We come now to the final second, the last second, namely, a second arrest of the devil in Revelation 20:10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The purpose of God. Revelation 20, 7 through 10 is such a short passage, only four verses. But what a tremendous scope of events is encompassed. In a word, it is the final defeat of Satan. But how are we to respond to this? How do we process this information? On the one hand, we rejoice at the ultimate triumph of God over the devil. But this is also very sobering, should be very sobering and shocking even. We might wonder why the event should be this way. Why specifically should there be a second battle? God has Satan completely defeated after the first battle. Why is it necessary to release him again for a little while? Ultimately, we ought to be satisfied with this, if nothing else, that God is God, and we are but men, and that it pleases Him to make it so. God is God, and we are but men, and it pleases Him to make it so, as regards to Satan's end. Having said this, I will suggest that God's purpose in these events could be to show that His power over Satan and His judgment of him are completely and doubly vindicated. In other words, God engineers a double defeat of Satan. God seized him, imprisoned him, and released him and defeated him again. Ezekiel 38 and 39 also, though, provide further clues into God's purpose, purposes. I'm just going to go through these uh, quickly. <clears throat> Ezekiel 38, 16b, In the latter days I will bring you against my land, that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Ezekiel 38:23 So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations then they will know that I am the Lord Ezekiel 39:6b and they shall know that I am the Lord 39:7 and my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. 
Ezekiel 39, 21, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. And then in Ezekiel 39, 22 through 29, it continues to tell about how everyone, both the people of God and the nations, will know that He is the Lord because of His judgment of the nations and His exile and restoration of Israel. Because God is God and is perfect in power, love, and purity, there is a profound appropriateness in this truth being known to every person. And conversely, there is a profound inappropriateness in having people who were made by God and for Him for the purpose of glorifying Him and enjoying Him forever to carry out and to carry on with some sort of separate existence, some sort of prideful, eternal, pretended cluelessness about who God is and who they are. And I would uh, urge us to understand the events of Revelation, as complicated as they seem, and as sometimes maybe more complicated than they need to be. Let's understand that the events of Revelation are God's best way of accomplishing what most needs to be accomplished on earth and in heaven for His name and His glory among the nations and his people. I think I'll repeat that. Let's understand the events of Revelation as God's best way of accomplishing what most needs to be accomplished on earth and in heaven for his name and his glory among the nations and his people. I want to give a few applications, and then we'll be done. Coming back to the summary statement that I offered at the outset, God will bring about an end to Satan, the deceiver, with a defeat that is certain and a judgment that is fitting. I hope and trust that you will agree, regardless of your views on the details of Revelation, that this is an accurate statement of the big picture presented by this passage. God will bring about an end to Satan, the deceiver, with a defeat that is certain and a judgment that is fitting. Here are four points of application that I want to draw from the text. One, know that the Lord is God. Remember that everything is about God not about the devil. Avoid a disproportionate fixation on the devil and his doings. <clears throat> There's a, a related point to this that I want to mention. The book of Jude is the little book that comes just before Revelation. And there's an instructive passage in there. It's in the context of talking about false teachers. However, it's applicable to us. 
Jude 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, or in the King James it says a railing accusation. But, he said, the Lord rebuke you. So, we need to, uh, we need to recognize that uh, this is the proper way to, uh, to address the devil, not with a railing accusation. This, this comes into my second point of application. The first point was that to know that the Lord is God. And to remember this is about God and not the devil. And to avoid a disproportionate fixation on the devil and his doings. The second application is this. God's judgment is both gladdening and sobering. Walk humbly before him in gratefulness for salvation by grace through faith in Jesus who paid the penalty for our rebellion. The devil's chief uh, crime was a rebellion against God. And we are guilty of the same thing. Yet Jesus gave his life on the cross for our salvation. This should cause us to be humble, to walk humbly before God. And as it said there in Jude, not to bring a railing accusation against the devil, but instead to say, the Lord rebuke you. It is against God that the devil has sinned and offended, and God will rebuke him. Third application, be on guard against deception. Deception is an ongoing theme throughout this entire passage. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. And number four, the non-Christian is called to faith in Christ. This is the only escape from God's judgment. It is a good thing to know that the Lord is God now as He calls to us in the hour of His grace. But it's an unspeakably fearful thing to learn it later at the hour of judgment. I want to close by reciting the doxology that's found in the first chapter of Revelation, verses 5 through 6. Revelation 1, 5 through 6. To Him who loves us and freed us from our sins by the blood, by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would take uh, the truth of Your Word, speak it to us by Your Holy Spirit, help us to apply it so that we may not just read aloud, but that we may hear and keep the words of this prophecy. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.